Hi everyone, this is Sean from Image Comics. I'm pleased to announce the first episode of a new podcast, Mirror Image. In this series, image sequential artists talk with other creators in film, music, prose, podcast, and beyond about their shared passions and processes. It's a new venue for creators to reflect on the things they love and dissect how they approach them from different media. And for our first episode, we have something truly special. A conversation between Rick Remender and Henry Rollins. Henry Rollins, as you probably know, is an iconoclast musician, poet, actor, photographer, and performer. Aside from being the vocalist for Black Flag, Rollins has released more than 30 albums and is the godfather of the modern punk movement. Rick Remender is the biting, prolific writer of Black Science, Seven to Eternity, Death or Glory, and Deadly Class, which is set to debut as a new TV show, Courtesy Sci-Fi, debuting on January 16th. Henry Rollins stars in the new show as new character, Jurgen Denke. Though Rollins' spoken word poetry albums have served as a huge inspiration to Remender's work, and the following conversation addresses how punk evolved throughout the 80s and works its way through Remender's comics. Check back next month for a brand new episode that, hint, should get you into the zone for comics like The Realm. And also, a huge thank you to Jeremy from Parents for the opening music. So without further ado, Rick Remender and Henry Rollins. Henry, how's it going? Oh, good, thanks. Congratulations on the uh, uh, we got picked up. So you're gonna you're gonna be yeah that's, forced that's to, great uh, news to... for you guys. That's that's fantastic. That must be uh, must be feeling pretty good about that. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I was uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. sitting up <laughs> sitting up. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing you go into. Not that pessimism is a healthy fuel, but you know you kind of have to imagine that it's not going to happen going forward, or else you kind of you know set yourself up for too much resentment and disappointment. The, so, the fact that you get the budget to make a pilot, I mean, in my opinion, I think that's incredible. You know that someone sees it's, so, it's your way enough. Yeah. Because the proof is when people give you money. You know what I mean? That's that's the ultimate. <laughs> money, they're put, money is they're putting yeah. their ass on the line, you know. And it's the true. Fact that it cleared yeah. that hurdle, and then it actually gets picked up. That's uh, you know, it's incredible. It is. Yeah, the odds were super low, so it's still kind of sinking in day by day. Um, I was sitting up last night trying to break some of the, the season stuff and we're talking about things that, you know, I, I came up with an idea for, for a potential conflict between you and Benedict Wong that you didn't get to spend any time with, with Benny on the, on, uh, he wasn't in your, uh, in your scene, but uh, no, when you see the pilot out pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But Benny is just, I mean, like we could, you know, you could listen to that dude uh, read the yellow pages if there was still such a thing. I mean, he's so good. So uh, yeah, man, it's 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 pretty wild. Boy, when you see your scene, it's crazy good. It's it's the nice bit of comic relief, but it also is uh, has a lot of weight to it. You did a great job. Oh, thanks. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was fun to do. That cast, the uh, you know the, the the kids, they're just you know in person they're really nice, but in their characters they're so hectic. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild to see. They all became like close friends. They were off playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff in their hotel room. It's, it was it was pretty cool to see it happen. But they're great, you know. At that at that age, if you had told me I had to like completely change my personality and stand in front of a camera, um, that wouldn't have gone over so well. I don't know how they do it, but the uh, I, you know, uh, I think truly it's a certain type of person to where if if you get that person and, and train them and just give them some discipline and some focus. It, it, they're kind of born for it. I mean, I've been around it enough to, yeah. you go, Oh yeah, you're, you're an actor. You know, you, you, they're just like, you see like a natural drummer or a natural swimmer. They're just kind of born to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of feel that way about writing too. I'm always curious about that in terms of your spoken word, you know, like I always tell people, for me, being uh, a skate punk and, and a depressive and a sort of rough situation in, in the in the mid to late '80s, punk rock did, as the as they say, change my life. You know, the, the first time I heard Ian talk about uh, he didn't see much value in playing golf or being a misogynist or driving around in a Camaro, I was like, oh my god, it's kids like me, but they've just started their own music, right? And it really wasn't until I, I hit your spoken word and your writing that I was, to me, it's like, it's ground zero because there was an authentic disclosure there and you never attempt to polish or sell cult of personality. You just gave the honest goods of what was broken inside and, and, and talked about it. 
And I respected that so much. And, you know, you, you joke about it, about the identification of it all, but it is hugely important and it does inspire other people to not feel like such freaks and to try shit, you know, and, and that in of itself is a whole other topic you can drill into. But I was always curious, you know, I'm a big fan and I know a lot of your history, but I don't know what bridged you into spoken word. Was that something that like in the mid eighties was starting to go around in coffee shops and you just like grabbed your journal and jumped up one night? Um, almost. Um, what it was, was there's a local promoter and pretty forward thinking guy. He, he's uh, kind of an LA native. He's been getting things, putting people on stage and making things happen for many years. And back in the eighties, he would do these shows at small LA venues where he would give everyone gets like seven minutes and he'd have like 20 people on stage. So it just, it's continually one person and another, then another, and then another. And it's, the singer of Gun Club, the guitar player from the Minutemen, and the bass player from Black Flag, and this poet, and this performance artist, and it was really fun. And Chuck Tukowski, Black Flag's bass player, was on these yep. bills, and I would go with him, because the gigs were in Hollywood, and we lived at the beach, which is like nowhere. And so I would just get in the van and go with him to go see, you know, Bright Lights, Big City. And I'd watch him, you know, talk for like seven minutes. And one night, the promoter came up to me. He said, well, let's get you on stage next week. And I said, what am I going to do? He goes, you got a big mouth. You never shut up. You know, it's like, we'll give you 10 bucks. <laughs> I, I heard 10 bucks. Because in those days, you know, there's just, you're thinking about your stomach. You know, there's just not a lot of food all the yeah. time. And so $10, you're like, well, uh, yeah. And all of a sudden, all fear melts away. And so the next week or thereabouts, I jumped up on the stage at a little place called the Lhasa Club, and I read something that I wrote, and I spent the rest of my like my four minutes telling this story about what had happened the day before at band practice when these uh, neo-Nazi guys tried to run over our guitar player, which for Black Flag is just another Wednesday afternoon, but for the audience, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, they're like, just their jaws hit the floor, and... <laughs> You know, I, I've been telling stories since I was like six. You know, you know, you, I'm just, I come from a neighborhood where if you couldn't make someone laugh, you, you're going to get beat up. So you learn to imitate all your friends and all of that. And so I can tell a story. So I told the story and people came up to me directly afterwards and said, you, when's your next show? And I said, what, I'm going on tour next month. They go, no, no, no the next show where you just like get up and talk. And I said, never. I just, you know, I got this $10 bill. Um, that was it, <laughs> but I, yeah, I really yeah. liked it. And so the, the promoter said, look, you're, you're good at this. How about we put you on? We'll give you, I'll, you open for one of my poets. He had all these people he's managing. I'll give you like 20 minutes and like $25 or something. Uh, I went, okay. And that I took to it where it felt as natural to me as being in a band on stage. I, like I didn't need a band. I could just hold my own with, you know, information. And so by late 83, those poets I was opening for were now opening for me. And then by 85, I was touring across country, you know, drawing between 12 to 50 people a night. And then by 86, I was international. And it just kind of went from there. And now you know, it, it's a you know, like a Showtime special and uh, 13 yeah. months in 20 countries. And, you know, it, it's quite a, quite a thing. How do you find in terms of like, now that you're doing that, I mean, it, it's a different, it's, it's gotta be sort of a different kind of satisfying in terms of being able to get up there and express, you know, all of these various things about life and what you're dealing with. And well, your yeah, perspective it's great on to it. have an audience. I mean, that, that's the thing that the best thing that someone even cares. I'm lucky but, you know, you are, anything you get on stage, the fact that you get a second tour, you must have done something right. I mean, after a while, yeah. it's not luck. It is you. I mean, you know, you're, you got something. And so I don't get I, – I, the satisfaction I get is the fact that I, I get to keep doing it. And I've heard a lot of stories about people, you know, they have the managers and agents. They struggle to get a gig. Like they can't get a show and it's a real challenge and it's nerve wracking. I've never once in my life had that problem, like ever. And I know for bands, it's, it destroys them. And since I was in 
you know, early bands in Washington, D.C. to like this minute. Never once in my life have I ever said to an agent, hey, can I go tour? And, he's like, and they always say like, yeah, just just close your eyes and touch the map and we'll, you can go. And so I take advantage of that because I like being on stage and I've never not been able to get a show, which is crazy. I mean, I... I I just feel very fortunate. And and so that's the satisfying part. The fact that someone gives a damn about what I'm doing. Yeah. No, I feel the same way in regards to print and the books I've done. You know, I started doing weird little punk rock comic books in the nineties and, and, uh, you know, humor stuff sort of inspired by Mr. Show and the alt alt comedy stuff. from back then, and to this day, like the thing that really matters more than anything is that the ability to connect with any humans and that they'll actually take time to read shit I wrote. And it's something that, you know, I paid enough dues on and coming from, I think the punk rock scene, you know, like you temper ego, you don't, it's not something where you're reveling in it as if it's something to like validation food, but it's just like, what, what an amazing thing it is to be able to take whatever shit is rumbling around in my head and try to concoct something good with it. And people will actually show up and, and pay a ticket to read it. And it's, you know, it's, it's nice to hear that, like, but that still doesn't, you know, all these years later, you know, it's not something you take for granted. Imagine I'm kind of terrified of failure and I strive to, you know, every show for me is like, yeah, I have to, it, it just has to be as, as the best I can make it. And I, I think that helps promote longevity. I mean, if you can still care about it as much or, you know, in often it is with performers, they care about it more as time goes on because you become more yeah. in control of what you have and which is kind of nerve wracking because you're far more aware of how many ways there are to screw it up. But, um, yeah, yeah, I take everything but myself seriously. That's like one thing I think I got right where I take the work seriously. I don't care about myself all that much. You know, I, I just, when people applaud it, it I get uncomfortable but I, I do like working insanely hard to come up with something that, you know, I think an audience might like. Well, sure. And you, you grab somebody's attention. I mean, you know, and, and you owe them your best. And it's like, um, it's interesting how I think anxiety and fear and not insecurity necessarily, even though that's a part of it, but those, those emotions keep you doing your best work and they keep you touring and that keeps your, your, your muscles strong. You know, I got a, but, exactly. uh, a couple of buddies that are stand up comedians that are, you know, well, God, one of them's, you know, in his early 50s now, and he's still very popular and, and he's still doing great. He never stops touring. He never, ever took a couple of years and, and took that time off. And he was also sort of charged by that anxiety and that fear and that desire to give his best. And so while, you know, plenty of his peers and people have kind of fallen on by the wayside and their work sort of suffers, his shit is, is still really solid. And it's because, he, you know, he never, he never, A, bought into his own bullshit or thought that he was, you know, like there and could take the time off, which sounds pretty nice to me some days after I've been working like five, you know, five weeks in a row with not a day off. I go like, right. yeah, that'd be pretty good. The anxiety, I try to look, I have, I have anxiety issues and insomnia issues, so I try to look at that anxiety as like it's food if you use it right, because I mean, I can't get rid of it. Suppressing that shit just doesn't, I can't find it, you know, and go for a hike and oxygenate the brain or, or hit the gym or, or whatever, but it still comes back an hour later. There's an upshot, and that's that upshot is that you keep working and doing your best work and, 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 not, and not taking it easy. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I go from one thing to the next uh, I, I don't take vacations. I just don't understand it. You know, I, I just don't enjoy the idea of nothing to do. Uh, I guess I could, yeah. <laughs> but I just—it it just seems so boring and depressing. Um, I just like having, you know, a, a schedule. Yeah, it sounds nice though. I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I'm plugged into a lot of different things at this point, and with a couple TV shows and. And I'm always, you know, I've always got four or five different books I'm working on at any one given time. The, sure. the, uh, the, the idea of time off sounds pretty good, but you know, I've, I've got kids and I'll take them on vacation and you, you know, I love time with them, but I'm still itching in the back of my head. It's almost like you're addicted to some kind of, uh, endorphin kick, like the, uh, the, the, the constant, you know, the brain doesn't shut off. And so it's like, you need a valve. And I think that the, the creative stuff and the writing in particular, 
Like I can't, uh, you know, I can't take more than two or three days off if I force myself without, you know, hopping on and, and having to unload some of the, the thoughts that I'm having or else they just sort of drive me nuts. Right. I'm so, I'm so excited to get to write more stuff for you. I tell you the, uh, <clears throat> the day we were on set, it was uh, one of those moments and I'm sure you've met heroes of yours where you've had similar circumstances to this, or maybe you haven't, maybe it's sort of like callous at this point, but I knew that you were coming in and I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to Henry for five minutes. I'm going to chat up how important, you know, the spoken word stuff was to me and, and what an inspiration it was in order, like, you know, deadly classes, you know, it's about 70% me taking life stories and kind of hiding them behind this, this, you know, high concept of a high school for assassins. And uh, <laughs> I love the idea. I mean, I, as soon as I saw the script and I got my head around it, I was like, that is so completely badass. It's because kids at that age, they're so kind of terrifying anyway. You might as well totally. give them give them some chops and like get, get them educated on because their totally. lines are already insane anyway. It's true. You know, and, and like a lot of that stuff that I felt, you know, my parents were moving me around a lot, went to some pretty rough places and, you know, nothing like what you experienced, you know, with, with friends actually being, you know, shot, but I saw a guy shot in front of me and, and had another pal shot in the back and the violence was everywhere in the early 90s. And so it was also a chance to sort of examine that and what the effects of that were on me, you know, and um, high school is, is gnarly enough, you know, sort of being able to take those experiences and, and heighten them. And if we do our job right, then they're all sort of metaphors for universally kind of uh, recognizable things that we all went through back then. And then the rest of it can just be sort of fun, right? You know, I, I'm curious because I, I recognized that day. It was like, you know, that was a huge treat for me to, to see, you know, one of my heroes in a scene with this great cast we had put together and that amazing set that we had. Uh, and, and basically what amounted to a shit, to a shit joke. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, I uh, I entered into that, and I, I I've met some of my heroes in the past, and ended up um, you know having experiences where in the middle of talking, they're checking their phone, or or I was uh, you know a bumbling idiot. At this point in your life, you've already you know you've walked the trail. You you know, are there stories that you met one of your heroes and just dicked the whole thing up? No, I, I I've met a lot of my heroes who are primarily musicians. And I've met pretty much most of them. Some of them sadly died before I could meet them. But I, I've been able to carry myself fairly well. I remember the first time I met Iggy Pop, who to me is just kind of like, you know, that's he's like the, the guy. And I, yeah. I was 22, and I think all I could ask him was, have you ever played Seattle? And he kind of looked at me <laughs> like, yeah, I played there, and... And I, and I was just so, you know, I, I didn't want to meet him. He was at a party that I was at. It was a record release party that I got invited to. Um, and I went there just basically to eat all the free food I could. And he was there. And I'm like, whoa, there's the man. So I said, hey, we'll, we'll take you over there and introduce him. I went, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I'll just, you know, totally. look at him from here. I, I don't need to meet him. <laughs> and um, they took me over there and, you know, I, I met him and I just kind of went humana humana, you know. I was gently led away, and then years later, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. sitting with him in his apartment. I mean, you know, we're we're pals, and I said, "Remember the night we met?" And he said, uh, "No." I said, "Good, that's good," because I, uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I always I, wonder, I, you know, the the instinct of going to like up to approach. Like I've had plenty of situations where I've been thrust into it. Like you know, go talk, you know, go go meet him. And I've always just been like, I'm a fan. I don't need to go over there and like sort of stumble around. I mean, in your situation, obviously, Iggy's probably also aware of your own work, so it's a different kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're, you know, kind of an, an established, you know, musician type or whatever, it's it's easier to meet someone else because they, they might, you know, know you or it, it path is a little bit more well-greased. But every once in a while, the thing that's always like, made me smile is when someone I admire comes up to me because I don't, I don't think anyone knows me and you know what I mean? I, I just never think about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah, times yeah. in my life, people I think are great, they've walked up and said, Hey, you know, Oh, Hey Henry, nice to meet you. I'm like, it, it is. And like <laughs> David Bowie did that to me. Oh like my he, God. He, wow. he said, Oh, Rollins. And I'm like, okay. 
This is happening. That's got to be. That's incredible. He goes, oh, this thing you said was very interesting. He starts like quoting me. I'm like, okay, that's David Bowie oh, wow. repeating me back to myself. And I, I asked him, I said, you, <laughs> you read an interview of mine? And he almost like, he went, are you kidding? I read all your interviews. You're very interesting. Now, last year you said this. And he quotes me from some German magazine from a year before. And then he asked me, when's your next book coming out? And I said, you, you know I write books. He goes, oh, yeah, I've read a few of them, but not all. You're very prolific. I said, okay, this, this needs to stop. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I just man. didn't know That's what it. to do about that. I mean, you know, they, they have lives. They go to book and record stores or, you know, they go to gigs. And it's just interesting that someone like that, you just figure they, they wouldn't know you. And most of the time, obviously, in my case, they don't. But, um, you know, every great once in a while, that's happened to me like, you know, three times in my life where you're like, okay, that's, I wasn't expecting that. It's pretty cool. Dude, yeah. You were able to have a conversation with him. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's so surreal. Sitting down having lunch with him, which was, you know, odd. And we talked about all kinds of stuff. And he's, you know, an incredibly engaged guy. Just, you know, goes to bookstores, record stores, goes to gigs, he DJs. He was into kind of sort of everything. I, I, I'm mainly a fan. I mean, I, that's one of the things yeah. that I kind of sort of like about myself is I'm way more interested in what you're doing than what I'm doing because I'm stuck with right. what I do. I can't not do it. I'm obsessed. And so when I see, you know, I go to gigs all the time and I see bands on stage. I get, you know, like excited about record releases. Like, oh, a week until this record comes out and I get all, you know, and I, I like being almost 60 and still having that same 17-year-old enthusiasm for a show or a new record or a book. It, you know, just, it keeps you kind of not so involved with yourself. You don't, you know, kind of get in your own way. Yeah. When I fall back into that stuff and just, just drifting into Amoeba and going through, going through records or just sitting around and spending the afternoon playing music and, and reading a book or getting into like out of, out of my own head and out of my own work, because you get so dialed into how driven you are with that stuff. And it's not necessarily, you know, a bad thing, but it's reconnecting not, it's with not myself. Bad. It's not a bad thing, but it's not good all the time. I, I think is, is no. the thing. You, you do need to get out like all, you know, I've read a lot of uh, authors' biographies. I just think, you know, literary biographies are fascinating. And all my favorite writers were big readers. And they all took a lot yeah. of time to read, which gets, as I get older, it becomes more difficult. Because after yeah. I've read for a while, I, I feel I should be writing instead. Yeah, I get that same instinct. And I also realized that... For me, as my career finally took off and I went from, you know, I was, you know, a punk rock kid in San Francisco working for Fat Mike in, in the late 90s and doing album covers, and just barely paying the bills. And, and so when things started to take off and people actually wanted to pay me to write and they wanted to read the stuff, every hour not doing that felt like I was being disrespectful to the opportunities that I had. But then yeah. at a certain point, I had to come to terms with, hey, man, it's it's not going away tomorrow. Take a breath you know, grab a novel. I reread Dune this year. I read, you know, uh, a book about the Comanche, which was super fascinating, Kingdom of the Summer Moon or Empire of the Summer Midnight Moon, something. But I really uh, couldn't recommend that one more. But it recharges the battery. When you get out of yourself, you're able to come back with more. It's one of the reasons why I travel, where I'm forced to upload, you know, sights, sounds, smells, different people, different cultures, it's unavoidable. I put myself on the plane and like hurl myself onto the continent of Africa with a backpack and go, okay, that way. And like, you can't help but get input. I mean, what are you going to do? Hide under your bed. And, and so you, you come back to the table. And for me, yep. it's like writing uh, or a stage. I, I got more colors on the palette just because I, I threw myself out into the territory. Yeah, or else you're going to just be regurgitating the same the same vocabulary, you know. Like you have to you have to refresh it, and I had yeah. it for a while. I think that two three years ago I was so overwhelmed and just working myself to death that I wasn't reading, and I might drift into an article, you know, obviously on the internet, and uh, uh, but I hadn't picked up an actual book and immersed myself in somebody else's world or in, in any of that stuff. Yeah, and the traveling you do. I remember I saw you in the late '90s do a spoken word. You had just come back from Africa. 
and you were talking about the you know the safari stuff and how how, how amazing that is i yeah is this i i call it the big book it's where you get some really big life lessons because it's it's a part of the world that where a lot of people on that continent live at risk in a constant yeah. state of food or water anxiety um yeah i was speaking at a university a couple of nights ago and one of the topics i brought up to this theater full of students was uh, the idea of post-traumatic stress, where a lot of people in the world, if not a post-stress environment they live in, uh, or a post-trauma state, uh, they're born into trauma. Their lives are a one lifelong traumatic experience. So it's not yeah. PTS, it's just traumatic Constant. life. And yeah. you see that in Africa, I've met a lot of kids who were abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army uh, in South Sudan and in northern Uganda. And these kids were made to, like, you know, hack their sister to pieces, and something in them just just dies. I mean, it, you can just tell the traumatized yeah. kids because the eyes look right through you. And I've seen kids like that in, like, Madagascar and Haiti and different places. And it, this is one of the reasons why I travel, because that really – it informs you about you'll you'll never look at food or water or capitalism or your own you know democracy the same way again. I mean, it's just a quite an eye-opening experience. Yeah, I mean, relative to that, whatever whatever shit I'm complaining about any given day is so trivial you can't even you know. So having something to measure it against. I also just yeah. think that it's so easy as, as a human to stick your head in the sand and not want to go face that stuff. And that's why I find it so fascinating that you were activated into the touring world through music and that became sort of your, your normal and you, you don't have kids. So you're off out living, out learning, out earning, uh, I believe is the, is the quote. And in the out living part, you know, like of all the places to go, you go out and face in terms of going to these places in Africa, you go out and, and face kid who has been programmed from a young age where his firmware has been fucked out so hard that he's been told to machete his sister uh facing that you know like and going back to it to face it is it's it's beyond it's not just it's not just brave it's wanting to take a drink of reality that i'll be honest you know i'm uh, even watching a documentary, it, it'll fuck me up so bad for so many days that, that uh, you know, there's some in, instinctive desire to just be like, ah, la, 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 I, I don't want, I can't, I don't know what to do about that. Well, it, so part of that I, I would, could be fatherhood, you know, where you, you, all you think of is like, you, it throws you into protection mode. I mean, you know, for me, the more I see, the less able I am to look away. And so I... Yeah. I, I go, you know, I, I've been to all seven continents, about a hundred countries, and I, I'm just kind of fascinated by the human mechanics of the world. I, I don't go in much for like the nature walks. It's nice, but you know, for me, it's all about cities, places that have just had an election or a war. You know, where you you watch you know, the political uh, play out, capitalism, global climate change, globalization, and people, yeah. you know, who just kind of get caught. Either you're on, you're, you have the whip in your hand, or you're receiving the lash, and that's that's the the two sides of it to me. Either you're getting or you're getting got, and so I try and explore both sides of that, and that's what in kind of informs my, my travel. I haven't been to the continent. I haven't seen any of this other than seeing it in documentaries and, and on on the, the magical screen in my comfortable living room. Doesn't it feel like when you go in in in, in sort of eyeball that and, 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 and soak in it, that the inability to affect any change on it, do you find that that leads to nihilism on some level? No, it makes me feel like a real schmuck. I mean, because ultimately, I will leave. And like, you go to yeah. Tibet, you, you like spend time in Lhasa, and you know, you see these beautiful, gentle people just getting their history atomized by the Chinese. Well, the Chinese government, yeah. you can't yeah. invite the people of China, but um, yeah, it's totally. right in your face. I mean, it is happening. That country is going to lose their culture in this century. And the world is letting it happen. And eventually, you go back to the airport, and you go, well, good luck. And so what does that make yeah. you? 
So I'm in those situations quite often where in a week, I'm, I leave North Korea and I go back to Beijing and you leave behind these like starving, terrified people. And then you, yeah. you, you hear this, you know, you're pressing, you know, little rocket man. You're like, man, you have no clue on how to solve this. Like, you know, this yeah. is not, you're not part of the solution. And so I, that's when you realize your smallness in the world. The way I redeem myself is I write about it. I talk about it. I raise awareness. I beg people, yep. especially young people, to get a passport and to go out into the world and become global citizens. Like, don't yep. be afraid of the world. Get out there. And yep. maybe we can change this conversation before the century is over. I do think that that stuff makes a difference. I know that, you know, I, I never had the opportunity to, but, you know, in terms of where I donate my money and, and the things that I can give when I can, um, you know, Greg Gaffin singing about being a global citizen opened my mind to the concept, you know, music. There's a power to the platform that, that you guys have, and it, it definitely has shaped it, it a lot. It takes of, work. I mean, it, entertainment gets me to about 20 countries. Like the same ones, you know, continental yeah. Europe, Scandinavia, UK, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Russia, Poland, Ukraine, in Canada, America, and a few others. But it doesn't get me to Kazakhstan or it doesn't get me to Laos or Cambodia. And so all these other things are electives <clears throat> where I go, OK, yeah, uh, what shots funny. do I need? And, and I, you know, basically get going. And, and that's. I take it upon myself and, you know, I travel for weeks at a time alone, you know, with no backup, you know, and I just hump it across Central Asia and somehow end up in, in Kazakhstan at the end of a month starting in Uzbekistan and, you know, Crazy. get through it with all my fingers and teeth intact. And I come home, you know, like six pounds lighter than when I left and hopefully with no internal parasites. But it's a very heavy extracurricular activity you know touring is one thing um but this extracurricular activity that informs the tours you know like living on you know the napo river in ecuador for a few weeks learning about biodiversity and codependent e e ecosystems which i did a couple of summers ago i went there to learn this is what i do with my money i spend it on you know plane tickets and renting a Life. tent in the in the sahara desert for two weeks it's inspiring i mean i think that the uh you know, the, the, the thing about that is I had a buddy and we were talking about tribalism and how we're moving back towards it. And, you know, the white nationalist movement and the, the world is sort of re-embracing tribalism. And we were talking about if maybe digital uh, uh, connectivity is sort of to blame, where you think that that was going to open things up. But doing what you're doing, where you're taking your human brain and body into these places and experiencing the world and actually experiencing it, you know, it's like experiencing it is what kills racism. It's why people in the cities don't carry the same sort of fear and xenophobia in their hearts that, that somebody does when they're living in a place where it's all, all one culture, all one color. Um, right. And I do wonder if like, you know, what you're talking about in terms of being a global citizen and going out and seeing more of it and actually feed on the ground and, and being there that's something we're losing, right? Because everybody thinks they're getting the same, the same injection from their phone and their computer. But why are we seeing such a rise in tribalism and nationalism? Tribalism is always a bad sign because tribal, tribalism, it just, it's just my opinion. It's a sign yeah. of either limited or diminishing natural resources. Like say if you're in the Serengeti, like if you're, you know, who's ever living out there, or say you're in South Sudan and you're Dinka, um, you, you had to survive uh, Khartoum, you know, North Sudan, Sudan proper coming down and killing you. Or if you're Dar from Darfur, you're the Janjaweed killers are coming down from the North to exterminate you and you have to flee to Chad. So you, life is desperate. There's not enough water food is there, eh, maybe you'll eat, maybe you won't. And so you have to pull in, you have to circle your wagons. And so I can understand yep. that when water goes away for six months of the year and there's nothing to eat and the other tribe is invading you, I got it. But when you see it in the West, 
when you can just yeah. turn the tap on in your house and leave it on for six months and water keeps coming out and you have to go to the gym because you eat too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there, there's no supermarket you've ever been in that didn't have food in it. That's just not what you're ever going to see in this country. What you're going to see is too much. When you see people with a ton of stuff already, when they get tribal, they're tripping. And that should be feared because they're fearing something. Someone got to them. And so when you see these people saying white people in America are under attack or when on Fox News you hear about the war on Christmas and the war on Christianity, that's completely false. But the way people react to it is about as terrifying as humans can get because you can't negotiate with someone who is scared on that level. Like, you know, we've got our guns and, and Jesus, and, and this is our town, and if you're gay or black or brown, you, you, better, you better turn around. Like, you can't get that guy off that point. Like, nothing will get him off that point. And no, no. amount of logic, no empirical no. data, nothing. And so when you see tribalism in, like, America... Now you've got problems. Well, is it the is it the decline? Because like, and you speak of like, all, it's all relative to these things. I look at the tribalism and I go, is it because your dad had a motorboat and you can't afford one that you had to turn to oxycotton? Like, in terms of like what it is that's that's lighting the fuse on this shit. That's the the big conversation that always intrigues me. Is like, well, it's a di- and, I think it's know. a very dynamic conversation in that it's not one thing, it's and it's not it's not even myriad things. It's a bunch of things reacting to each other dynamically. In that these three things do this in this city, in this part of America. Like there's the yeah. eastern northeastern Democrat that's different than a Southern Democrat who's pro NRA. And that's how he gets elected because you better be pro NRA or you're not getting anywhere. And so in America, it's a fantastically dynamic place. So when someone points to one thing, that's when I know they don't know what they're talking about because you don't have enough fingers. Your whole family doesn't have enough fingers (laughs) to point at everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, 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 it all works together. And so it's everything from a lack of education, which I think has been on, in the books since Reagan to now. And yep. why? Because you make a lot of your money with incarceration and war. And so yep. you basically you're prepping some kids to grow up to be put into the system so you make it easier to get into prison. And others, you're going to put them on a battlefield. And when you make money on bombs, bullets, uniforms, and, you know, uh, weapons delivery systems, the only problem you have is peace. So you go and create fires everywhere, and America goes and puts them out. And I did a lot of USO work. So I was in Iraq and Afghanistan and Kuwait, uh, places like that, over and over again for years. And when you get out to these places, all this stuff is kind of like – the old man flashing you. I mean, it's all exposed. Like there's, it's all open secrets. Like I was in, in Baghdad right around the time when Abu Ghraib broke out and people were telling me like, Oh, Abu Ghraib's nothing. We've got way worse bases where we're, we're just, you know, breaking people's faces. And like, why are you telling me this? Like they were into it. So, so a couple of people, they go, Oh, that's nothing. Like, I'm supposed to be like, oh, awesome. And I just listened. High high five. Yeah, well, that's where they were at. Yeah, and so I just listened, and I just kind of took it in and made notes later. And so in in this country, you you have a bunch of people who don't travel. And so it's easy to sell them on all Muslims are bad, and, and the Middle East is just full of a bunch of filthy, stupid people. But when you, right. I, I've been to almost every country in the Middle East, doesn't make me an expert, but I've been met with nothing but the most sophisticated civility. The times I've almost been killed, which has been three, that was all in America. The rest of the world has been, <laughs> by comparison, quite friendly to me. 
How much? That's I mean, uh, that speaks of volumes. I mean, you but, think yeah, about the that's, kind of traveling that's, you're that's doing. America. You know, it's yeah, it, man. It, freedom is a is a is a trippy thing to give someone with a tenth grade education. You know, because yeah. an American democracy yeah. is nothing but compromise, compromise, negotiate, compromise, and then you tell everyone they're number one. And so you you have a lot of people with a operating smoothly with a lot of cognitive dissonance. And so that's why they need beer and tobacco and really bad food and really awful television to get them through that. And that's just some of the dynamics that Americans groove groove on kind of, that's just kind of how we, how we are and, and how we get by. And I, but I guess I thought because there was enough awareness that we were, that that was our cultural cancer and that, that this shit was sort of, you know, um, to be avoided that especially like when I started becoming aware of it through, you know, through, through punk rock in the mid eighties and just, you know, reading more, I guess I had a sense like, like uh, maybe it was just youthful ignorance that things were going to get better. And in my lifetime, you know, I'm 45, it seems that it's just getting worse and worse. And I can't figure out in terms of like, you know, it, all the things you mentioned, all the institutional, uh, you know, keeping people stupid, the racism, the, you know, all of the cultural, uh, all the things that are broken about this country in particular, um, where we can't even get simple gun laws uh, on the books. We can't accomplish well, the you, most you, common you, you sense. You live in a, in a country that, that really rocks capitalism. And there's, you know, a, a million different versions of capitalism. Ours is you know, pretty scorched earth. And the fact yep. is guns make money and death yep. makes money. And, and when you monetize almost everything, including health, then, then what do you expect? I mean, that's just how it is. Like when, if you get shot today, someone makes money cleaning up your body parts. I mean, that's a job. That's a really well paying job. It's, it's been privatized. There's a, one of those reality yeah. shows about a company that goes in, you know, gets the hotel room where the guy cut himself up and bled out. That room is ready for rent by 9 p.m. And they show the company, the guy's franchising, and he's making a mad money. And, and so America, you know, it's one of our, our upsides is we've found a way to kind of monetize everything. And yeah. in yeah. that situation, a lot of people are the other person's mark it can really ruin a lot of good intentioned people because you get your college education and you get into the working world and you get into that building you've always wanted to get into. And then you realize, wait a minute, (laughs) I am speeding my own demise along. My paycheck is helping to, to ruin my life. And it's, it's an interesting place to live just because I'm sure you've traveled pretty far and wide other countries in other continents, they just don't. This is really not on the menu like it is here. I, I spent no, months no. at a time out of America, and you come back and you're like, "Oh yeah, this everything is for sale, and every yep. it's all everything is monetized." And I'm not Mr. Socialism guy. I quite like capitalism, but people move hard on each other, and. Well, it, it, you end up seeing everybody, you train to see everybody as a consumer as opposed to a community. I mean, that's the way it works. Exactly. You have and, to, and when you're treated you know, like a consumer, the, the danger is when you treat yourself like a consumer. And I, I'm not into conspiracies, but I am into spending a lot of meaningful time on the street. And when you eat bad food, the pharmaceutical companies love you because they've got medication. Sure that helps keep you alive longer. Like the way you're eating and living, you should be dead. But thanks to science, you get to stay alive with your awful heart and your ruined (laughs) arteries and your thick blood because you've eaten fast food since you were 14 and you've completely destroyed your metabolism. Thankfully, um, there's drug companies that will keep your dead ass alive. You are like walking dead. But you, that's why I think a lot of these people hate abortions, because you can't put a cigarette into the mouth of a corpse. You know, you need more bodies <laughs> to consume more Coca-Cola. 
and more Big Macs. And, and uh, it's true. Or, or those are the people that, that potentially are going to have it rough off, and they're going to be easier to sway into voting against their self-interest and, and become Republicans. You know, like it yeah, does seem. And, or or it's more fodder for the prison system. I, I uh, whenever I go into a Walmart, I call it committing Walmart. I commit Walmart. Every once in a while, <laughs> on tour, we, we pull the. You know, I'm on a living on a bus, and it, you know, Walmart's one of the only places you can park that damn thing. And so we pull right. into the Walmart at like three in the morning because we're on our way to some city. And me and the road manager and the bus driver and the merch guy, we all walk in and buy our soup and our coffee. You know, we're living on that bus. And you see you, those, those kind of the, the front of the stores, you know, kind of loaded with impulse buy cookies, you know, whatever it is. In a small supermarket, it's like right next to the National Enquirer's all the bad food. You know, Walmart, it's like a third of the front of this place. It's like, wow, all this stuff will kill you. And you see the people shopping in these places. You're like, wow, they're just these huge, slow-moving, you know, like heavy-breathing people. Like, wow, America got you, man. There's like they're coughing, they're pounding coffin nails into you. And yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to avoid that kind of diet and it's hard to afford living better it's, it's crazy hard and, to afford we've right. only been able to start eating like like normal humans and you know i'd say since i was 30 in the last 10 years can i afford like clean food and not just having to go like fuck it i got 99 cents i'm gonna go down to escape from new york on hate street and get a slice of pizza right. but you know do understand it, you know? that people live their entire adult lives with 99 cents and, and you see what it does to a body and when you, you know, when you're living in trauma, your release is alcohol or, you know, some kind of food that satiates all the pleasure centers on your tongue. And so totally. I wouldn't go as far to say that America is a racket, but it's, it's kind of close and, and you have to, you have to be careful. And since at least Reagan to now that we, they, they've been kind of tenderizing the Americans to where a woman like Sarah Palin can get a book deal. And I think yeah. she wrote two books that is yeah, to say, yeah. I have two of her books and they're like 20 yeah. minute reads. And like there, she says nothing, but those are bestsellers. She has nothing to say. And she was a hair away from being the president of the United States. I mean, you know, right. And you don't have a thought in your head. Like you, you no. have nothing to say, and and you're a consultant on Fox News. That was a seven-figure yeah. paycheck for being a moron. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you think in terms of like, look, I mean, the, the problem with education and, and getting optics on all of this shit, you know, and 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 the more you see it, and the clearer it is to you, the harder it is to have any faith that it'll rectify itself. Is the problem I find, and as a father. Like my wife is from the UK and we talk often and not in the sort of, you know, reactionary, like if they're going to put Trump in, we're leaving. It's not just Trump. Trump is a symptom of a larger cancer. Like we talk about jumping ship, take the kids and start over in the UK. They're citizens. That, that's there, not, a, it's, my it's wife not the worst idea, but you know, any country in the they've West, they've got their own. Yeah, yeah, every country's right got its own stuff. I mean, I, I've been in, in Europe twice this year. I still have more to go. Every country, obviously, has its challenges. The, the thing that gives me optimism as far as America, which I, I don't see leaving, I, I love it here, but what, what makes me optimistic is when you see these young people marching, like today, yep. and all they're yep. saying is like, look, we're not trying to burn anything to the ground. We're trying to get you adults to wake up because we're, we're tired of being afraid to go to school. We're just trying to yeah, survive man. high school. Like, hormones are one thing. Bullets are another. So come on. And so all of those young people, whether they're 18 by November of this year, they'll be 18 by 2020. And so I think what you're going to see in America in the next 25 years, I think a lot of old ideas will be dying with people like my father, who I, if, I, if he's still alive, he'd be around 90. And you know, to the right of my father is like Sean Hannity in a wall. And... <laughs> a, a, a tremendous racist, a, an amazing homophobe, and a record-breaking misogynist. Yep. I mean, he's and a PhD, so he should know better. But I, I think at some point, 
in, in the next few years or several years, there'll be like no one around to watch Fox TV because of people like your kids, because there's no way you're letting homophobia into your household. And so there's just a no. lot of these kind of really stupid burdens that a lot of young people aren't going to be shouldering. No, I mean, misogyny, homophobia, like, look, and everybody in the cities that, that we were, I, you can't believe these are still conversations that humans have to have, you know, like, wait, but this is, you always said it is, but I really loved the smallest mental hurdle to get over. And I always use that, like, it is the smallest mental hurdle to get over. But right. I think that that's, again, from humans in contact with these things, and it's demystified, and there's no xenophobia when you have friends of, of all ethnicities and sexual orientations, they're just human beings. And so people in the cities don't have those hangups. It seems right. like it's going and, backwards and I, in the rest. And I don't mean to be like the, the you know, an elitist. I'm not trying to sound like oh, those, those rubes out in the country. But for fuck's sake, they are going, it does look that they're going backwards. And maybe that's the algorithm that I'm tied into on the internet telling me what I want to hear. But looking at their voting and the sort of vitriol they have towards But that's, towards that's, that's Mexican tribalism. Vote. That tribalism right. coming back, yeah. Yeah. and and that tribalism comes from a lack of resources and a lack of information. And like you know, if, if you hear the thunder and you think that's an angry god, then you pull your children close to you, and you get your uncle and your family, and you, you get them inside the tent, because you know God is angry. But when you yeah. know it's you know it's a weather system, you're like, oh well, <laughs> you can think about it differently. I have a, a problem when when people call. You know, Trump supporters deplorables. They're not. I mean, there are deplorable sure. people in America and in the political world. The deplorables are people like Paul Ryan, who know yeah. better, yet they know better. Just went along with this guy. And like he, Paul Ryan's a lot of things. Stupid is not one of them. A very educated man. No, he's he knows better. He's just going along with it to get his tax cut. But when you see these That's people right. at a Trump rally, with their signs and everything, all I see is enthusiasm, and they believe. I mean, they're, they're, it's like getting mad at a dog, and I'm not comparing them. I'm just saying the dog believes. These people believe in this guy, so they're not deplorable. They're, they're just no. They need more information. Anyone who thinks President Obama's from Kenya, there, there's nothing you can show them that makes them go, "Oh, okay, whoops, got that one wrong." I mean, they're, they're never coming off their point. And, and no, and we've all got boutique news where we can hear what we want to hear. So we can go and find the exact thing that reinforces what we what, what, we, what makes us feel good, and and then off yeah, we go and, to the races. And when you mix, you know, fear of the future and desperation and financial insecurity, you, you can get convinced of a lot of things. And, and I think that's where a lot of America toils is in this kind of dusky uh you know twilight of how's my future going to be like am i going to be able to afford health care i've got three kids can i get them through and when you have people so preoccupied with that you know when someone goes oh these people don't read and i i'm quick to de to defend because i meet a lot of people like and so i hear people who vote like i do and they're incredibly judgmental like, well, they're like, I was like, but you're ripping on this guy for not reading? When does he have time? He's up at four. He, he gets right. three kids bathed, clothed, and fed and off to daycare, and he takes his crap yep. car to a cubicle. He's a miracle worker. I mean, you yep. want to give him time to read? When? Like, there's no time. He gets home. He's exhausted. Those kids are hungry. It's a grind. There's no book the weekend. He's trying to sleep. And, and so, yeah, you, know, like, you know, give him an episode of Roseanne, something he can microwave in three minutes, because that is all there's time for. So when you yep. say, oh, these people are stupid, they're not stupid. They're treading water. And they're, they're forced to being more resourceful than they should have to be in a country with so much. I, I think that's where you, you, a lot of people are yelling over each other and accusing each other of being like, you know, you're stupid, you're an elite. You know, it goes back and forth, and everyone's standing firm and no one's listening. And I, I think yeah, that's, right. uh, that's yeah. kind of where we're at now. But I, I wonder yep. if young people are 
kind of the ones saying, all you people need to shut up. And, and like yeah. I was watching some of the marches today on the news, but the signs these young people have. And I was like, wow, because you know, I come from D.C. They're marching through my home city. I, I recognize these streets. I'm like, wow. Yeah. I used to take my skateboard down that street. That's so cool. Yeah, it does give you hope. I mean, it, it does. And absolutely, you know, um, Gen X, whatever you want to call the the, the generation between the, the millennials and the, and the boomers. I mean, there was an apathy growing up. Like I, I was aware of these things. I didn't, uh, I didn't want to move down a road, you know, and, and intellectually I couldn't when I was going to join up with the wrong side in terms of the thinking, but I didn't march. There was like plenty of shit that, that went down that like, even when I was in the Bay Area, you know, I think I went out once when we attacked Iraq and, and did. But to see the, 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 the kids gather together like this, and it's easy to like discount a lot of various aspects of the generation, you know, that comes after yours, you know, the old man on the lawn shaking his fist. But when I saw the sort of uh, the passion that they rose up with after Parkland, what they were going to try and do. I was like, you can't anybody shit on, on, on this generation, on these kids anymore, because they're not talking. It's not like during Bush. We were all frustrated. The world was crumbling down. Gen X was not out on the streets, you know, and that was always my, my big fear is that we've been sated by Xboxes and, and Cheetos and, and how bad Absolutely. would it have to get. That's, yeah, how, I, came, I was young during you know, Reagan and Thatcher, and that yeah. was a very much, you know, write a song about it, do a fanzine about it, get out there. Right. And I, I come from that where everyone you knew, like I come from Washington, D.C. and the, the whole discord, minor threat, Fugazi, that's the yep. world I came up in. And yep. every single one of those people and their wives and their husbands, like Ian Mackay, my best friend, that guy goes to every single march, like all of them, all of them. Like I, we talk every Sunday and I go, so, um, the, you know, like the, the, the March for Life, uh, March for Our Lives like a few weeks ago. I said, so I, I obviously you were there. He's like, yep. Like he goes to all of them because that's where his parents marched with Martin Luther King. I mean, like yeah. they, it's a whole yeah. family of activists. Like everyone I grew up with, they all vote and they all march. They all make signs and now their kids do it. It's just part of yep. how they see civics. It's just what you, it's part of your job being here. And, and, it, and it is, I, I, I missed it, you know, coming, I grew up in Phoenix. My folks were, you know, pretty Republican, um, you know, punk rock spoke to me, but I had to sort of shake off what was around me and then eventually pack my bags and, and move to San Francisco, you know, and, and try to reach. But, but just the fact that you did that is huge because a lot of your friends didn't. And no, I mean, look, you know, it, it, that's a hard thing to do. It is. And, and you get, you know, especially you get, you get wrapped up in that cocoon of familiarity. It's, it's tough to climb out of it after a certain amount of time. But the, uh, you know, like my wife has been taking our kids out and protesting and getting them on the walk, you know, she scheduled the, the, the stage, the walk out at the local school for the kids and wrote the signs and get out. And you do see that there is, that gives me hope that there can be some change coming up and that these things are not just what we're, we're not bound and determined to continue to, you know, relive this awful cycle, this cult, this broken cultural nightmare. And I think eventually, I, I guess, look, I mean, I still do fall on the side where I think that there's something going on with the partisanship that we're seeing that is in some way connected to our electronic addiction. And that's a, that's a bigger debate, obviously, but I think people are getting hip to it. I think the, the I think that, you know, the Facebook shit going on where they realize like, Oh, we, big brother showed up pretty much. And we just opted in. There was no need for any problem. Like we just invited him in. We became part of the algorithm. We sell our information and so that we can share photos easier. But I think that you look at the, uh, especially what they're saying now has been done there in the terms of the propaganda and the, in and again, not in an elitist way, but the ignorance that we're talking about in these other places, which I agree with you is by design. What, what we've created here with, this, with, the, with the modern internet is a, is a device where, of course, somebody like Putin, if you've seen hyper-normalization and you know how this guy operates, of course, like, look, I mean, I'm not a big conspiracy guy either, but I fully can buy into what, what they're saying has gone on there because I saw it. 
I saw the bots coming at me on Twitter. I saw anytime I would talk about, you know, liking something Bernie said, all of a sudden there was like clearly not humans on, you know, attacking me and saying like spewing vitriol. So the further we've gone down the internet and the less we put our feet on the street and sort of done what you're doing, where it's getting out and seeing the world and experiencing it as it actually is, not this curated algorithm that we've decided to feed ourselves. I think that the problems have a chance to sort of sort of solve solve themselves, at least to some degree, just yeah. in time for global warming to, to kill us all. Probably. I, I don't even know how Facebook works. I've never I don't use it. My company has has a page to announce tours and stuff, but our, our web person right. does all that stuff. I, I can't, I'm just not, not interested. And I, I use the internet, you know, to, to look at stuff, but I don't, I don't know anybody, you know, I work. And so I tweet once a week, like here's the radio show notes. Right. I don't right. read any of the things that people write me. I guess they write, they write me or they, I guess they do. Um, I've never read one, but like, you're not, you're also like, you were 35 when the internet blows up. Right. So like your entire brain and way of thinking and approaching life is offline. So you're the last generation that's most of your life is raised, you know, like you were a fully formed, you know, human unit before the internet kind of takes over society. I've just spent a lot of time on the streets of cities and to me, Mark Zuckerberg, he's just a hustler. Not good, not totally. bad. He's just a hustler. And sure. when you're giving your information away, you're just, it's a, someone's, you're getting hustled. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you're I the product. I don't understand why, like, all these Trump fans don't see, they're getting rolled. And, and yep. they very well could be because they don't spend time in cities and they're trusting. That's where I was going to earlier. I think that's right. I do. I, I think and, that and it's not xenophobia. A, it's not ignorance, it, it's not a, a naivete. I mean, I, like Trump, I, I can't understand, like he fools no New Yorker, you know what I mean? Because no, there, no, no New no. Yorker that isn't streetwise. And I grew up on city streets all over the world, can, and I continually put myself on them. I see a grift before the guy even knows he's grifting. I'm like, you're a grifter. <laughs> I am. Wait a minute. I am. Yeah. I know. I saw you coming. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing how these people get taken like wow, it's like the it's, it's some of these people, like those people who get they actually do think the Prince of Benin wrote me a letter today. Yeah, sure he did. <laughs> you know, my my mom just got suckered by one of those. Somebody had texted her and said that her computer was full of the virus, and she had to call and give her a password. And I get it when 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 you're of a generation that didn't have to deal with this. But you know, the rest of it. Like and speaking to what you're saying about the cities and people who are disconnected. Like all I think there is that, that humans are very simple. We don't understand shit and or have deep empathy until we've experienced or seen it up close on some to some degree. And I think that like for me, like my wife has rheumatoid arthritis. We got married. This all sort of came together while it was still the Bush era pre-existing condition laws. So she couldn't get insurance. She's used to the NHS. She's used to being in the UK. She wants to stay here. We're getting married. I can't even, when we're dead broke, I can't even get her health care, right? And she's got this debilitating disease that's incredibly expensive. And there just is no option. You just, before the pre-existing thing was solved, there was nothing you could do. So we were just going, we had $42,000 of credit card debt for medical procedures and, 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 and medicine. And we were just barely holding on, living in a garage in, in, in the Sunset District in San Francisco. And I'll tell you, that'll activate your appreciation for how fucked the system is and in a way that prior to that, I had, I had no emotional well, you, connection. You see how it picks and chooses. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, in this country, everything is selective. Justice is selective. Like in my neighborhood, in, where I live in, in Hollywood, I call the cops. Yeah. They show up in about 20 seconds. They call me sir. Uh, they give me a latte. And they shoot the bad guy. <laughs> um, you go sure. about two yeah. miles south of me, and I got a dead guy on my lawn. All right, we'll be by tomorrow. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. all yeah. it's all very you know. It's just you get depending on your ethnicity, uh, financial uh, level, you get different kinds of justice, different kind of food, and a different sure. kind of life, and a different kind of you know healthcare. And uh, this country picks and chooses while it boasts 
I wouldn't, it wouldn't be so insulting to me if everyone bragged about the paperwork. You know, like, look at the preamble, look at the Constitution. Well, then live it, dude. I mean, totally. like you're holding a Bible. Yeah. Live that. That's like the heaviest book in the world. Try, yep. try lifting it. Like, how are you? Why are you cursing that guy out for being gay and you're holding a Bible? You, you're out of line, man. <laughs> like, and I'm no. No, it's, a, it's a, yeah, picking, but picking and not, choosing is right. People aren't ask, acting very Christian-like, and so it's a it's a tricky place to live in because a lot of people are working angles, and the, sometimes the people yeah. you vote for they end up being schmucks too. Yeah, I mean it's a fact, and I, I think that uh, yeah, I mean you know it's interesting. Just we we, we sort of dove into the into, into it pretty deep, and all the the broken aspects and the things that kind of weigh on my mind. And I guess I just there's, you know, there's maybe a, I'm there's just a book for, I would uh, recommend. Um, yeah, it's one of the best books I've read in maybe of the last ten years. It's this guy uh, Todd Nahisi Coates, C O A T E S. Um, he's one of the writers on that Black Panther uh, film. Yeah, I know his work. Yeah, he writes for but, the um, Atlantic. Right, and, and I I started seeing him on TV. He was promoting his new book, and I was like listening to him speak. I'm like, wow, you are blowing my mind. He's a fascinating intellect. But his new book is called We Were Eight Years in Power. And it, yep. it's just a fantastic drawing together of the dots about you know the mechanics of how it is in this country for some people. Well, his, it, his background is incredibly fascinating, too. Yeah, we talked all about it in the book. Um, but as far as someone who really sees it, um, he's a, uh, he should not be missed. He's uh, that, and that book yeah. is a, it's a pretty profound piece of work. Well, I'll, I'll go pick it up. I've, uh, I love his, his articles in the Atlantic and I was excited. It's basically, to it's like were, those uh, Atlantic articles, but it's a whole book. I mean, if you've read those, yeah. then you know, his kind of how he is. It's like that, but 300 pages. And it's, uh, you know, he's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll uh, I'll put that up for sure. Well, shit, man, this has been a, a a real treat for me. I appreciate you carving out a big chunk of your day. Oh, um, no problem. Thanks and, for uh, uh, thanks for the interest, dude. It's uh, yeah, I, I I I can't I can't. This is this is my uh, you talking to Bowie. This is this is that for me. So thank you. Oh, and I, thank uh, you. I, I look forward to writing uh, uh, more more ridiculousness for you to to perform in in the coming months as we get the show up and running. It, it it's a uh, Again, yeah, all, that's, the, that's the, all the best of luck with that. It's a, it's a hell of an achievement. I mean, uh, getting a show over the wall, it's, it's, uh, there's nothing small about that. I mean, it's, you know, it's no, it's no small deal. An epic thank you to Rick Remender and Henry Rollins. The show Deadly Class premieres on Sci-Fi on January 16th. For those who have been enjoying the comic drawn by Wes Craig, colored by Jordan Boyd, and edited by Sebastian Gurner, the second hardcover, The Funeral Party, which collects issues 17 through 31, is now in stores. A huge thank you to parents for providing the beats, and check back next month for a new episode of Mirror Image.